On the board is, uh, we're almost done with the book of Revelation. Well, I shouldn't, because it'll take us a while to get through chapter 19, 20, 21, 22. But <clears throat> we are getting near the end of our study. So we are going to have to make a decision, because we've been in this. We started with Daniel, and we did all this. It's been something like 18 months, 19 months on this. So we're going <clears> to <throat> have to decide what we do next. I have a lot of ideas, but if you have a deep, burning, passionate overwhelming desire to study a book of the Bible, let me know what that is, and uh, uh, I'll give some consideration to that. Otherwise, I'll just choose something. So, but the, uh, let's just review a couple of things uh, for maybe the last time I'm going to do this. This chart is summarizing, I think, most helpfully, the general narrative of the book of Revelation are the series of judgments. Remember what they are, seal, trumpet, bowl. We have done all of them, and we're at the very end of the account right before the Lord Jesus returns. And what, and I, as under the inspiration of the Spirit, the last two chapters, chapter 17, chapter 18, revolve around this term Babylon, and I put this in quotation marks because in the notes I say this, I see Babylon as figurative, because I, I, it's that way in many parts of the Bible. Some argue it's the actual rebuilding of the old Babylon city. I'm just not sure that's the right way to look at it. But nonetheless, what's really important is however you see the term Babylon, there's no question it represents the false kingdom that is challenging the kingdom of God, therefore challenging Christ. And so the Bible calls the ruler of that false kingdom the Antichrist, 1 John 2.18. In the book of Revelation, he's called the beast. In Daniel, he's called the little horn. In 2 Thessalonians, he's called the man of sin. I mean, on and on and on. You could just cite all It's the same person throughout consistently the Bible. He becomes the world ruler. He becomes the world dictator. And he puts together a coalition of nations and support, some integrated tightly into his ruling kingdom, others, the coalitions he builds around the world. What's happening at the end of that seven-year period is this is all unraveling for him which is what's going to culminate in the, the world battle of Campaign of Armageddon, which we're almost there. We learned last time, a couple weeks ago, chapter 17 is about religious Babylon. It's that religious entity that is put together to support the worship of the beast. As he consolidates his power, he turns on that and overthrows it. That's what chapter 17 is all about. And so that religious entity that he had put together... He now overthrows it so that the, he can cultivate with the false prophet the singular worship of him, which is his goal. Today I want to talk about chapter 18, which is really a very short, very bang, 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 pithy statement, but it is the collapse of the political, so I'm going to put it this way, political slash commercial Babylon. And uh, this, this is what gives, uh, this is what had given Antichrist his wealth, uh, his, uh, his uh, capacity to consolidate this world uh, confederation type of arrangement, uh, and it's unraveling. <clears throat> and so what is, what is really impossible to do, honestly it is, it's really impossible to put this on a timeline and say, Okay, at this point, this is all collapsing. It's, I don't think we can do that. I don't think the Bible is encouraging us to do that. It's just saying that everything that he had built is starting to come apart. And so what, what it does here in chapter 18 is, again, it gives its, with this completely, uh, with this book, it's just a lot of figures of speech and a lot of metaphors. But if you keep in mind what this is, is the political slash commercial aspect of this world kingdom that he has put together. And it is, it is collapsing, and it's, it's about to be destroyed. And so uh, that's what this is an account of. Now, what I just did in this quick, brief overview, does that make sense? Yes. Any questions? I'm mean, just trying to make sure you've got the, kind of the big picture as well as now the details. We're, we're zeroing in on this, this collapse, this unraveling, and what is really going to be um, the event that is associated with the ultimate collapse of everything he built in the Battle of Armageddon. After these things, I saw, I'm in chapter 18, verse 1. 
After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Okay, we have seen that now in two chapters. That is a refrain that the heavenly beings, the angels serving God, keep crying out. And she has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Again, in verse 3, there's a lot of figurative language there. So the, the, the language of immorality, acts of immorality, her sensuality, they are sexual metaphors, but what they are really saying is all aspects of the world have committed to her. She is their, their loyal, devoted um, entities. And so the best way to describe that is with sexual metaphors. You follow me? So, I mean, they have, they have completely, loyally, uh, intentionally, willfully committed everything to her. And her, again, is female pronoun, but Babylon, this kingdom. And in this case, and you saw it in the beginning of verse 3, the political, the nations, the kings, and then the second part in verse 3, the merchants. So you have the political and commercial aspects of the world community are deeply involved, deeply entrenched with her. They're loyal to this false kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom that Antichrist has put together that has the metaphorical name Babylon, which both historically and throughout the Bible is representing evil. And you'll notice again at the end, uh, at verse 2, those those words that we saw, demons and prison of unclean spirit and so on, that's again saying what we've learned before. The energizing power of this false kingdom is Satan. The energizing force behind it is an evil force. This is a false kingdom. And I've said this before, but I'll restate it, that remember, Satan's challenge of God is over the fundamental question, who has the right to rule? God created everything. God is the sovereign ruler. And what is happening is Satan challenging God. And in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 and following, the words of Satan are repeated there. I will be like the Most High. My goal is to topple God from his throne. That's Satan's energizing uh, motive. So now, and we've learned this in chapter 13, that the great dragon, Satan, that's one of his titles, energizes and empowers the beast. I would contend probably incarnates him. This is his final attempt to overthrow God and his kingdom. And so that's all it's saying. The energizing force and power behind this is an evil force and power. All right, so... Does that make, again, trying to unpack all this figurative language. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So now I heard another, in verse 4 now, I heard another voice come out of heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, it may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, even as she has paid. Give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which might, which she has mixed Makes twice as much for her. All right, now, again, verse 6 sounds a little funny, Medi, but this is a statement of God's justice. It is called, and it's throughout the Bible. I've done this, written this before on the board. This is talionic justice. All verse 6 is saying, it's stating what God is about to do. What God is about to do to, to this false kingdom is a just act. You follow me? This is an act of God's justice. And that's what verse 6 is stating to us. This is an act of God's justice. This isn't a temper tantrum of the deity. This isn't some impulsive action on the part of God. This is God carrying out justice on this false kingdom. 
Verse 7, to the degree she glorified herself. These are three characteristics of this, again, Babylon, female pronoun, she is this false kingdom over which Antichrist has ruled. She has glorified herself. What vice is that? Pride. She's lived sensuously. What does that mean? Not only indulgence and not only pride, but indulgence, selfless, <clears throat> self-indulgence, self-centeredness, selfishness. She lived sensuously, to the same degree she gave torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, "I said, as a queen, I'm not a widow, and will never see mourning." So there's not only this pride, there's not only this self-indulgence. There is this sense, "I am secure, nothing." No one, no disease, nothing can touch me. I'm invulnerable. I'm, it's incapable of me ever being destroyed, which is the ultimate epitome and consequence of audacious, arrogant hubris or pride. So it's a, what you get here in the sense of verse 7 is this the ultimate arrogance of this kingdom uh, that Antichrist and, and all that uh, Satan's been doing has built. It's impenetrable, but it's a false security, isn't it? So it's, um, I almost made a political statement there, and I'm not going to. So it's just that kind of arrogance and that kind of, I'm untouchable. No matter what I do, I will succeed. That's what he's trying to capture in this, this figurative language in, in verse 7. I'm invulnerable. Nothing can touch me. Well, that is, about, that is about to collapse because the next verse and then the verses that follow are the lament of the world over the collapse of this system. It's about to fall. So when you say she, she's talking, is this Babylon that's being used figuratively mm-hmm. is this harlot-like creature? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Again, the, the, the she, the pr- personal pronoun, there, female, feminine pronoun, and, and it's, it's representing this false kingdom. Yeah. That's really what it is. Is this a weakness of the flesh? Because this person is sure. somewhat flesh. And Not so, yeah, very much so. Being empowered uh, by <clears throat> Satan. Yes. And the experience <clears throat> of having all of these highs and all, all these powers and whatever he says happens that he is just totally carried away with um, I guess the sense of the immediate rather than feeling that there is a time coming for judgment is, is he unaware of this that there is it's hard to believe that um, it's hard to believe that he's unaware of it. I mean, in the sense that um, what it is said will happen to him and to Satan. But I guess you could say the ultimate arrogance that is being manifested here is, I don't believe it. I don't think that's going to really happen. I know that's what that's what this book says. I don't believe this. I mean, I think it has to be that kind of, that kind of sense uh, in, in the heart of this the beast, the, the Antichrist. Yeah, I mean, it's just this def- this unimaginable and almost incomprehensible defiance. I mean, see that, but that's the heart. It, 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 that, you know, I, I know what you're doing with this individual, the beast, and so on. But now, let's just be really blunt, distill it down to the common, ordinary person. That's at the heart of their rebellion against God. The essence of sin is, despite 5,000 years of recorded history, that shows nobody gets away with this. I am making the statement, I alone am the exception, and I will. I will defy God. I mean, whether they even put it that way or not, that's, just, in effect, that's how they're living their lives. I'm never going to be called account for the choices I've made. I'm never going to have to to meet God and give an account for the choice. No, I alone am the exception. I am the captain of my ship. And I don't mean to make light of that, but that, 
what you see manifested here in this, this egregious demonstration of audacity and hubris and pride is at the heart of every human being who shakes their fist at God. I mean, it really is. And, and that's why when you, when you come to that point, and usually what has to happen is you kind of have to hit bottom. And sometimes crash on through the bottom and look up at the bottom to really realize your need is a supernatural need. And it's only going to be met in Christ. But, you know, uh, some people, even in that, don't return or don't turn to the Lord. So I, that's, I didn't mean to go a little bit beyond your question, but at the heart of at the heart of the human condition is that issue. It really is. We just anyway. Okay. Now, verse eight, really through the end of the chapter, uh, chapter eighteen, is just a, a series of really bang, 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 bang accounts of different parts of the power coalition lamenting the collapse of this great kingdom. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence, mourning, famine. She will be earned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her strong. Despite the arrogance, despite this, this sense that <clears throat> I alone am the exception, it doesn't matter, I am so secure, no one, nothing, and no force can touch me, God says, in one day, in one day it's going to collapse. So it's it's it's... It's, it's an amazing point of contrast. It's a juxtaposition between this arrogance of, uh, of, of, of Antichrist and the kingdom and, and God's perspective. Oh, so that's your sentiment? In one day you'll be gone. So it's like it's just, you know, at some point God calls people to account. And in this case, this false kingdom that has been constructed. So verse 9 focuses on the kings, the political leaders. Verse 11 focuses on the economic leaders. And so you just have everybody is watching, observing the destruction of this kingdom. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality that sensually with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Now again, this is somewhat figurative. Is it literally the burning of the city? I mean, it's hard to know how we should completely understand that. But whether it is, I mean, literally the burning of the capital city of the empire, it's just everything is collapsing and destroyed uh, around them. But the point is, the kings of the earth are lamenting. Oh my, everything we counted on the source of our security, the source of our identity, everything is gone. Whoa, whoa, it's gone. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, <clears throat> excuse me, because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and citron wood and every article of ivory, every article made very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble, and I mean, you just go on and on, cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and just on. And the fruit you long ago had gone from you. And all those things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you. Men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things became rich, will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She was clothed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. And so you have this... Um, this collapse and disintegration of everything that you would measure by any standard as wealth. It's all gone. And so, and as I'm sure you, you know that and you would agree with that, so many people measure their, their standing in the security in terms of material wealth. And it, I mean, you know, if you've ever seen a fire or if any of your houses or you've ever been with something, you have everything in the house and it can be gone in a very short period of time. I thought of M pub, M's pub, you know, there over the holidays. I would just, you know, you're sitting there eating dinner and you hear this, all of a sudden this becomes a, an inferno and it's, it's gone. And only illustrate, not that M represents anything like this. I didn't mean, just how quickly it can be gone because... 
the the world and the the global nature of our of our world today, how interconnected everything is. My what my son does in England, he's very much involved in all this world finance stuff. I mean, he just when we were talking over Christmas, he just said, "Dad, you have no idea how interconnected everything is today. It's just how everything is so interconnected and intertwined together. This idea of you know the unique American economy," he says, "that's false." There is no unique American economy. It is an American economy, but it's linked and networked and integrated with everything else that's going on. And so when one thing collapses, like China's production, its productivity level starts to slip, and they're not quite buying as much oil as they used to be, well, that's only China. No effect on us. Really? Have you been watching what the stock market's been doing? Because the price of oil is tanked. Because of what's happening in China, and because of what's happening in Iran, because uh, and I'm saying all that because what what this is just summarizing is something you and I can look at and say, I can understand how that can happen. In the 1700s, you know that wasn't quite, but boy, I really can understand how that happens. And so every measurable dimension of the material wealth of the world is gone. And so all the security and power and affluence and significance that was associated that with that is gone. Yeah, I, I just wanted to tell you that your use of the, the phrase false kingdom is in, instead of Babylon has been really helpful Good. for me to understand this. Good. I think that you know just really addresses the false kingdom. That's right. Well, good. I'm glad that that helped because it really it is a metaphor, and you just have to understand what is that saying. What is the the, the content of that metaphor? And it's uh, this as I'm I'm trying to I guess I'm trying to make sure you, this is not an unimaginable thing for you and me anymore. How this could happen? Now, granted, it's it's going to be God is going to be the one affecting it, but this is this is really the collapse of every dimension of people's security is gone. Every dimension of it is gone. Well, you know, there's a lot of similarities here. It doesn't appear if if he was using the city of Babylon, the state of Venice, as a point of reference. Um, it wasn't being destroyed by forces, uh, by armed forces or anything. It, it looks like it's economic, yeah. uh, a, a breakdown of its economy, which is when... <clears throat> I don't know when you talk about the Antichrist having dominion over the entire world and the kings of the world, to a point apparently, but they were still, now they're still there and Babylon is gone. And, and so. Uh, yeah, and I mean, the, the institutions are still there, but everything that gave them value and importance and significance is what's going, it's just collapsing. Yeah. And there's nothing left. I mean, that's it, there's nothing left anymore for the that's most part. It's going to spread to them as well. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's just going to affect it. And every single human being on planet Earth is going to be affected by this. No one will be immune to this. And so then you see in verse um, 17 uh, and 18, 19, and for one hour such great venture, every shipbuilder, every passenger, sailor, as many as are making life by the sea, stood at a distance crying, what is the city like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and were crying out, whoa, whoa, this great city in which all who made, all who had ships that she became rich by her wealth. For one hour she'd been laid waste. This is just the trading and commercial and um, movement of goods. I mean, everything that's tied to a global economy is collapsing. They don't have anything to move. The trains don't have anything to carry. The ships don't have anything to carry. And that's, that's all it's saying to us is that every dimension and aspect of this commercial integrated world order is gone. They don't have any, there are no more goods to ship. And then in verse 20, you, you have this, this remarkable, triumphant climax to the collapse of this kingdom. Rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea. Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found anymore. 
and the sound of the harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. No craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. The sound of the mill will not be heard in you any longer. The light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. The merchants will, the great men of the earth, because of the nations, were deceived by her sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And what you see in verse 21 and 22 and 23 is a normality of life is gone. No more weddings. No more music. That's all it's saying. The norm of life is gone because everything has collapsed. And then the, 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 John writes here, as the angel is saying it, deceived by her sorcery. And then verse 24, and she is the one, that is Babylon, this false kingdom, is the one who caused so many martyrs, killed so many followers of Christ. So you're, you're at, uh, we're at the key turning point, if you will, of the book, which is the return of Christ. You see, the image we're to get, the uh, picture we're to have, the word picture that's been painted, is everything about this kingdom is collapsing. This false kingdom that that every aspect of it is collapsing. And what, what is happening is then all the military powers of the world are turning on him. And that's what is leading to the campaign of Armageddon. And this sense almost is, and I think this is a legitimate inference to draw, humanity would absolutely destroy itself if Jesus didn't come back. Now, God's going to hold everybody accountable when when he returns, but Jesus returns as an act of justice. Jesus is a warrior king. He returns on a white horse and so on. But he's not, what he's doing is not to exercise some great military victory, which he will up at Armageddon, but it's really to mete out God's justice, that final act of God's justice. But the picture of this um, in chapter 19 is preceded by this just remarkable, we're back in the throne room of heaven in the first couple of verses of chapter 19. So before we start to look at that, study chapter 19, because there's a great deal in this chapter, there really is. Let me see if you have any final questions about the previous 18 chapters. (laughs) I'm wondering on chronology here. Yeah. So we've talked about the the seal judgments and the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments. Relative to what we just looked at in chapter 18, where do they occur, or are they part of what happens in chapter 18? Uh, that is a great question. I don't know if you heard it. Uh, what's the chronology of all this? I think it's it's hard for us to know exactly how tightly all this fits together. But this is what most expositors uh, will, will say, Jim, and I think it's it's reasonable. That what's happening in chapter 18 particularly, chapter 17 is is Antichrist turning on that. So that's that's probably shortly after the midpoint of the tribulation. That's when that would make sense that that would occur. But I think what's happening here in chapter 19 is really the result probably intentionally by God of the, of the seven bowl judgments. Oh, okay. I think this is the consequence of that. In other words, that, because it's so, those, remember, if you remember briefly when we looked at that, uh, they're very short, just pithy. Bang, 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 those things occur. But all of those are uh, at such a level of intensity and devastation that the normal order of things can no longer go on. Right. And I think so chapter 18 is just summarizing, because of God's judgment, the bold judgment, those last series, uh, this is the consequence of that. Just everything is collapsing. It makes sense to do And I think that's the most reasonable way to put this together. Okay. Any anything else? Is it fair to say then that chapter seventeen is very similar then? A result of the, of the No, I, I I responded to Jim a little bit. I think seventeen, we have a little more clarity on that. That's when Antichrist turns on that world system to, you know, foster okay. the singular worship of himself. I think that occurs shortly after the midpoint of the tribulation, right in there. 
think that's when that occurred. I think we can be a little clear on that. Whereas I think 18 is more of the consequence of those last bold judgments, which are so devastating and so thoroughgoing in their, in their intensity. Jim, one other thing. Could we say that the source of man's desire for wealth and power also are the source of his, is the source of his destruction as well? Because it just takes it beyond. Well, yeah, I, I guess you could put it that way. I think so. Um, I think one of the things the Bible teaches us, and you sort of see it here rather clearly, is that wealth, wealth in and of itself is not evil. I mean, that's very clear in the scriptures. But wealth can have the effect of creating false security for a person's life. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why the Lord Jesus says, you know, it's, it's almost impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember Jesus saying that? Why? And I think in the context in which he's talking to the guys about that, the disciples, is because the rich man puts his trust in his, has a sense of his security, his worth, and his value, and his identity, and his wealth. You take it away, what does he have? He doesn't have anything. Everything about him, and I'm, I'm a little bit of hyperbolic language there, but everything about him is defined by his material possessions, his wealth. Take that away, what is he? Well, see, Jesus is saying, take that away, then you get down to what is really important in life. The fundamental issue of life isn't political, it isn't social, it isn't economic, it isn't financial, it's spiritual. And until and unless you get that straight, all of your security and all the value and all the identity you associate is, is a false security, a false identity. Take it away, you don't have anything. And that's why, you know, Another parable Jesus tells is a powerful one. You have the man who has incredibly wealth. And he's had such a great harvest. He has abundant stuff overflowing. What does he say? I want to build more barns to store more of my wealth. And what does Jesus say? You fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. That's how the old King James puts it. Meaning tonight you're going to die. And all that wealth and all that stuff, it doesn't mean anything. You've heard the old saying, uh, you, know, you never see a hearse towing a U-Haul where people take all their stuff. Nothing, you just do it. But again, the response, reaction to that is not that wealth is evil. It is not. It's, wealth is a stewardship. Well, God gives wealth to people to manage well for his glory. But if he gives it to you and you do not manage it well to his glory, just God is saying, you were not a good steward. Anyway, um, as I was responding, I was thinking of something else I wanted to say. And in my old age, I forgot what it was. <laughs> All right, let's start chapter 19. It's going to take us a while. Oh, my goodness, it's 1230 already. It's going to take us a while to get through this. It, it, at least next week, if not part of the week after that. So I want to take my time with this because there's a great deal going on in this chapter. It's short. It's 21 verses. But one of the things I want you to see is how many times the coordinating conjunction and is used. You see it in verse 11, you see it in verse 12, you see it in verse 13, you see it in verse 14, you see it in verse 15, you see it in verse 16, you see it in verse 17, you see it in verse... What does that mean? An and is a coordinating conjunction. It's coordinating and connecting a whole series of events that occur one after another after another. So this is a tight chronological sequence of the end. You follow me? What I just said, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what I did in my Bible, I put a little box around each one of the ants just so I didn't miss that. So it begins, however, within the throne room of God again. It's like what we saw in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We're back to that now. And after these things, what things? Chapter 6 through 18. That's the these things. After all of the events of 6 through 18. I heard, as it were, a loud voice of the great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. 
Now, I'd like you to observe with me how many times hallelujah appears in this chapter. It's in verse 1, it's in verse 3, it's in verse 4, and it's in verse 6. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word that means praise be to God. That's what hallelujah is, the Hebrew halu, which means to praise. And yah is short for Yahweh, so it's praise to God. I have never heard a phone sound like that. That's a very interesting. <laughs> so it's it's like hallelujah is that's how you pronounce it. hallelujah. That's how you would pronounce it in Hebrew. It's hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Isn't that interesting? Salvation, glory, power belong to our God. In contrast to the false kingdom. The false kingdom sent that message. Power, glory, identity, salvation. What happened to it? It's gone. Salvation, power, and glory belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous. The judgments of God in the book of Revelation are not temper tantrums of the deity. It is a just, holy, true righteous calling to account of humanity. For he has judged the great harlot, that's Babylon, that's the false kingdom, who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her, the martyrs, those who died. And a second time they cried out, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders And the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Third time we see that. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all his bondservants, you who fear him, small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. And as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of the mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let's stop there for a minute. I want you to observe We saw this in Revelation 4 and 5. We're seeing it again here. You have these concentric circles around the throne of God. It starts with the four living creatures, then the 24 elders, and then all the other masses. And it says in verse 6, the multitude. And and notice there's similes, the sound of many waters, as the sound of many, as the sound of peals of thunder. The worship and exclamation of joy and praise to God is so moving and overwhelming It's like Niagara Falls multiplied a million times. It's like the most severe thunderstorm you've ever heard in the summertime multiplied thousands of times. It's that rapturous roaring of praise to God. I don't know about you, but that's sort of an exciting thing to think about being a part of. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but it's one of those things, you and I are going to be there. We're going to be a part of this if you put your faith in Christ. So it's the entire throne room of God is exploding in praise to him. And it's all revolving around that four times you saw it, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, Hebrew praise to God. Now verse 7, a, a, a monumental concept that you don't see very much in the scriptures. And I want to develop it a little bit. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament prophetic scriptures, in the New Testament, not a lot, but several times, Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Who's the bride? The church. And so you, you have it's somewhat mysterious, but yet it's clear the culmination, the consummation of everything God has been doing is about to occur. And it's going to occur on earth. It's going to occur and all be wrapped around the second coming of his son. 
Now, one of the questions we have to ask, and this is always comes up, okay, when this is occurring, where's the church? Is the church on earth? Where's the church in heaven? Well, it depends on where you put the rapture. And I know we, we haven't spent a great deal of time talking about this, but my own uh, view, and it's a deep conviction of mine, is that the rapture of the church occurs at the beginning of the 70th week, or right before the 70th week, however you want to put that. So the church is with Christ. But as Christ returns, it tells us that he returns with the saints. Because what is recorded in verse 11 and following is not the rapture. Because the rapture, which is discussed in 1 Thessalonians 4 and a bunch of other places, Jesus does not come to earth. It's in the, it, he appears in the clouds. You want know, the shout, voice of an archangel. He's, he doesn't come to earth. But the second coming, he comes to earth. Zechariah 14 says he lands on the Mount of Olives. Jesus said, I'm coming, you know, he walks through the valley and heads up north. But that's what this is about. So it would seem that we should be understanding this as the culmination of all that God has been doing in his plan of redemption is about to occur. The bridegroom and the bride are about to come back to earth. And the, the, this marriage supper, it's this great banquet that's going to occur on earth. And that's, it's, I, wish I, I, I wish the Bible had three chapters on this. But the Bible doesn't have three chapters on this. The Bible just tells us this is an event, expect it, it's going to occur, and here's what it's going to occur. But you know, it's like so many things that deal with, with eternity. God does not, God tells us, but God doesn't explain it. Why doesn't he explain it? Because you are a finite human being. You're a temporal human being. And these kinds of things are infinite, eternal things. You have absolutely no category for understanding it. So instead of God writing out 17 chapters trying to explain it, he says, this is what's going to happen. This is when it's going to happen. It's going to be fantastic. You've got to wait. And you'll see it. Because he doesn't explain It's like heaven. The Bible has far more to say about hell than it does heaven. It, I mean, it really does not explain much about heaven. And I think part of the reason is, is we just don't have a category in our finiteness and temporal nature to understand the eternal and infinite. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor the mind of man can um, put together all that God has prepared for those who love him. Um, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Christians who have died and from the beginning of time or believers in the Old Testament. They're united with Christ. And so this experience will be somewhat different because the location is different. Um, what, are, what are the differences? I mean, will the people that have died and are in heaven and are aware of it uh, know about this? And they may not, no one knows, I guess, except God as far as the time. But then when they come, Will it be uh, different for them in terms of their capacity and how they are with the Lord? I hear your words, but I'm not sure I understand your question. I mean, um, do you mean they're, they're so like my brother-in-law Tim, yeah. who just went to be with the Lord right. a little over a week ago? Um, are you partially asked, what what is it like for him right now? Is that what you and then what will it be like when he is a part of this? That would be different. Yeah. Well, at one level, my answer is I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't. You know, again, the Bible tells us almost nothing about that. Second Corinthians chapter five: to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's a fact. That's true. And several of the narratives of Jesus' ministry tells us that explains it. Tells about the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that? All those kinds of things. But it doesn't. Now here is a detailed description of what it's really like for Tim. The Bible does not give us that. The Bible makes it very clear. 
there's a consciousness, there's an awareness, there's a worship, there's a fellowship, there's a joy. <coughs> but so when Tim, Tim's uh, first grandson died in infancy, it, I believe that, that one of the very th- wonderful things of Tim this last week is he's with his grandson. I mean, I, I don't re- have any reason why I couldn't conclude that. However, what we get, Fred, in, the, in this introduction to chapter 19, as we just, is what is happening is all of the saints in heaven are participating in this glorious praise of God, these hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah things. And so now there is this, because the angels are announcing, this is it. The end is here. And so, yeah, now there's a conscious awareness. You know, for some, it's only been a short time. For others, it's been in human or in temporal. It's been maybe a thousand years. (laughs) Maybe it's been 2,000 years. Some, it's been a couple of days. But now the culmination of everything is here. And so, yeah, I would, if I'm answering your question, I would believe there's a clear conscious awareness of what God is about to do in sending his son back. And so uh, that that would be at part of the reason, I think, again, for the exhilaration, the excitement of the praise of what we just... But you see, that's why when you, when you see that phrase, the marriage of the Lamb, and in verse 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's a lot of discussion among expositors of exactly when all this occurs. One thing seems very clear is the marriage supper occurs on earth. That seems pretty clear. And it's that celebration, it's that recognition, it's that, well, like all marriage suppers or meals after a wedding and so on. It is this, it's, it's really, it's, it's hard to get this in our minds, the mystery of this. But it's the bridegroom Jesus and his church. And it's described in verse 8. And it was given to her, clothed herself in fine linen, bright, clean for the fine linen, the righteous acts of the saints. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. What does that mean? It just means that Jesus, as the Lord of the church, the bridegroom, is now uniting with his bride. Obviously, it doesn't mean sexually. But there is now this unifying whole, the consummation of everything that God has done redemptively. When the saints come back with him and rule and reign with him. And it's going to be a great celebration. Did you ever see, uh, I, I haven't been at parables for a long time. Sometimes you see them in Christian bookstores or other places. This photograph of this long table. Did you ever see it? It starts in the front and goes as far as you can see in the horizon, the table stretched out. That's an attempt to capture the imagery of the marriage supper. It's going to be a great banquet on earth where the where the the uh, all the saints of God with through the church age, are, are sitting down and celebrating. Now, I think that's part of what Mark 14 is saying. When Jesus says of the Lord's table, I will not do this again until I do so in my Father's kingdom. I think part of that is we will celebrate the Lord's table with Jesus. He'll break the bread. So, I mean, that's kind of, isn't that sort of exciting? I know we don't get excited about that, but it's just, it's a try to picture what that is. It's, this is all it tells us. That's it. And I read this years ago and I was saying for the first time, I want to know more about this. <laughs> God says, sorry, you got to wait. Jim, where's the remnant in all this? I'm sorry? Where is the remnant in all this? The remnant that is 144,000 or whatever. At the time of Christ, uh, I, I don't know. Have they been martyred or are they still? I, I don't know. Um, the sense you get from Revelation 4, 7 and Revelation 14 is that 144,000 will continue their work until Christ comes back. Because remember, Jesus says in Matthew 25 that when he returns, he will divide living humanity into two groups. So, the, you know, the sheep and the goat. Wouldn't their existence make sense if the banquet is held on earth? Yes, I think so. I think so. But, I mean, we're making some reasonable inferences there, but it's, it, it makes it's sense. not clear the way that we might like it. I, not quite as clear as I would like it to be. Now, I just looked at my watch. It's almost 10 of I've got to stop. I must stop. So tomorrow what I want to do, help me remember this, Fred, I want to start 
again with <coughs> verse 9. I really want to say a little more about the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I have a little handout I want to give you on that. And then we'll just move forward, okay? It's just, and then this description of Jesus in 11 is unbelievable. All right, I hope you're sort of excited about this. I'm going to pray. Lord, it's hard to figure all these details out, and some of this you've chosen not to explain it. Uh, that marriage supper of the Lamb, that's a concept, it's a truth, it's mentioned throughout the Scripture several times, but there's not much detail. We don't exactly know what all is going to occur there. But we also uh, do know without any question that if we die tomorrow, today, whenever, to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And all that means, we wake up in the arms of Jesus. Uh, death is described in the scriptures as sleep. And it's a continuation of life. It's we pass from this life into the next life. The heaven, eternal life is an extension of what we're starting now. Eternal life begins now. We put our faith in Christ. And then death is simply the portal to the next stage. That's why Paul uses the word, I've departed. When he dies, I've departed. Uh, it's a word that's used of pitching your tent to go to another place. Now, these are not things that we fear. These are things that have glorious promise to them. And when we read these early verses of chapter 19, we see this rapturous, glorious, thunderous worship of you, God, because you are about to culminate and consummate history with the return of your son, with all his saints, the church, to set up your kingdom. And what we long for in chapters 4 and 5 is brought to fruition in chapter 19. This is the great truth. This is our hope. This is the certainty we have that you are going to complete your work. And you're going to destroy evil, vanquish it, wipe it from this planet, and establish your kingdom, which will ultimately lead into the new heaven and new earth, as we will reign and rule with you forever and ever and ever. You have made that promise to us, and we claim it, we believe it, and we trust it to you. That gives us confidence for living each day, and it gives us the certainty that you are going to come back for us, and where you are, we will be. There are the promises you've made. So give us a good rest of this day as we represent that kind of truth to others, and the certainty and conviction and purpose and meaning that life has because of these truths. We praise you for that. So may we represent you and all that you stand for well today, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen.